Good morning, Pastor Gary here. How's everyone doing this morning? I certainly hope you're doing well. Today we're using a different prompter than normal. The one I usually do sits right in front of the camera. You can't tell it's being used actually. But the battery for that one died and well, I didn't have any additional put in there. So we're using something different. Hopefully it works well. Hope everyone's doing well. Today we're gonna to be looking at one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. The reason for this is that it shows the place <clears throat> that the gospel of Jesus should take in everyone's life. We have focused this series in Philippians <clears throat> on how to beat anxiety back. Our world is one anxious place and every single one of us have and will face the prospect of rising anxiety within our inner being. If you're not well equipped to deal with those moments, you will lose the battle against the anxiety. And the truth is, most likely, you will lose the battle in which you find yourself at that moment as well. Like most of you, I have as well faced at times even sustained periods of stress and anxiety in my own life. Sometimes I did well at facing the anxiety. Other times, I simply didn't. I wish I could say that during those times, <clears throat> When I was failing, I learned a lesson and I was able to correct course. But more often than not, it's after the fact that the lesson is really learned. And here's the key. The lesson is not only learned, but it is then actually applied. There were times I lost in the battle against anxiety, not because I didn't know what I needed to do, but because I failed to use wisdom and rightly apply the knowledge I had to the situations in which I found myself. Here's the thing. Please listen to the wisdom Paul is going to share today. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of who Jesus is, the greatest means by which you can combat anxiety in your life is to remind yourself of the gospel of Jesus. Don't worry if you're sitting there right now and you're saying, I'm not sure I could elaborate well the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the end of the sermon, I will give you that truth. And I will also give to you some means by which you can easily remind yourself of those truths. So let's look today at the greatest measure we can take in destroying anxiety in our lives and the lives of those around us. This morning, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> it reads, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the thing, the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put on confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, a persecute, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, my Lord, 
for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul begins in verse 1, and he writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Paul is saying that it is easy to write to them the things he has already spoken to them about, Jesus. Because he knows that we can never hear the gospel of Jesus enough. And the gospel of Jesus is a safeguard in our lives. Paul says that though the church, Epaphroditus, and himself, and Timothy may be facing extremely difficult situations, we should be able to find occasion to rejoice in the Lord because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've already discussed that to live a joy-filled life is one that looks completely opposite of a stress-filled, ever-anxious life. And so Paul says that because he knows this to be true, he has no problem writing to them these truths of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for each of them. But this isn't all that the passage is about. In the next verse, Paul writes, Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. So now we have a new group of men who are brought into our letter. I want us to quickly compare the previous group that we spoke of that Paul describes as fellow Christians who were seeking to cause him trouble by preaching the gospel even more. Here's the key. Paul describes that earlier group of men as brothers in Christ. Perhaps not very brotherly, but misguided Christians. This new group Paul will never describe as Christians. They would call themselves such, but Paul will never place this label upon them. The reason for this is that the, they meet the men are heretics that have come into the church. Paul calls these men dogs, men who do evil, and mutilators of the flesh. The language that Paul is using here is very inflammatory. And today, in our PC world, would be seen as being quite divisive. But the fact is that Paul is doing so in order to be divisive. He is seeking for the church to divide from these men, because these men have brought heresy into the church. And it's important to note right now that the only means of confidence that we might have of eternal life is through the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything different must be rejected as heresy, and the individuals must be rejected as heretics. They must not be allowed to teach and preach within the church. Before we continue, I want to identify who these men were in the early church specifically. Paul is going to refer, them, refer to them as Judaizers. The reason for this is that they are going to preach that male Gentiles in order to truly be brought into the covenantal family of Abraham, must receive this sign of circumcision. Why are they preaching this? Well, truth is, they're being good Jews. Genesis chapter 17 lays out what is commonly called the Abrahamic covenant. <clears throat> 
It is the first covenant that begins the formation of a special people set apart by God for worship of him, the nation of Israel. And part of that covenant is a sign that every male within the nation of Israel must take. That sign is circumcision. And in Genesis 17, verse 13, we read, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. And so clearly God says that the everlasting sign of the covenant in our flesh is the sign of circumcision. Now, if I only gave you this one verse of the Old Testament, it would be very easy to see why the church might be swayed to say that circumcision must be required in order to be a believer. But it is not. God was not truly all that concerned with the circumcision of the flesh, because this was merely a sign of a greater circumcision that was occurring deeper within the spirit of the believer. Let's read this verse also from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 reads, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and live. Nowhere in the Old Testament are we told that life comes through fleshly circumcision brought by the hand of a man. But here we are told specifically that the true believer will have his heart circumcised. But the hand of the Lord, by the hand of the Lord, and what comes from that circumcision is life. This is a spiritual reality done by the hand of God. It is what we call today justification. This is the symbolic gesture that represents one being cut off from the sin within them. Under the New Testament, under the New Covenant, sorry, this sign has now been replaced actually with the sign of baptism. Baptism now re represents one covering by God and cleansing and separation from the sins of the flesh. There is an eternal sign of this act, but God has chosen to change what that sign looks like. The symbolism behind the sign is no different. So this is the error that the Judaizers were bringing into the church. Because these men are adding to the gospel of Jesus, Paul calls them dogs, men of evil, mutilators of the flesh. They are adding to the gospel. Paul continues in verse 3 and writes, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, we who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul begins this verse and says, It is we who are the circumcision. Those who believe in the gospel of Jesus are the ones who are now truly circumcised, because their hearts are being circumcised, not because of anything that they have done by the hands of men to their own flesh, but rather because of what God himself has done to their hearts. He continues, he continues and he writes, We who worship by the Spirit of God, believers in Jesus, are the only ones within this world who are now eternally filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God resides within us, and his Spirit now leads us as we worship Jesus. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 24, his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. It is only under the new covenant that true worshipers are filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore finally capable of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Paul continues and writes that we are the ones 
who glory in Christ Jesus. Heretics never find glory in Jesus. Instead, their glory is always found within their own works. It is the things that they have done that will bring them ultimate salvation, they believe. This is heresy. It is only the works of Jesus that might save anyone from the sin within their lives. We can do nothing. Paul finishes this verse by writing that we put on we put no confidence in the flesh. Again, we bring nothing to the table that we have accomplished or done that can free us from the guilt of our sin. We have done nothing of such great value that outweighs the cost of the sin that is in our lives. And if there were value in anything that we might have done or who we might be, well, then Paul says, look at my resume. And he writes in verses four through six, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul has done everything that a good Jew must do. Today we might say that Paul is a one percenter. He carries privilege that surely must mean something. The truth is that it meant a lot socially and culturally in Israel at the time. But when God himself looks upon the resume, what does he see? Because that's all that matters. Paul is now going to tell us exactly what all of this means for his eternal soul. Paul writes in verse 7, he says, But whatever was to my profit or my privilege, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever profit or benefits or privilege that his resume might have appeared to have gained for him, he says he now considers it all a loss for the sake of Christ. It all carries a negative value in the weighing out of just how great he might have been before God. He counts it as a loss. Not even, but a loss. The reason for that is that all of our good works have a tendency to make a person think that they are good enough for God to forgive them. And Paul says, no one did it as good as I did, and it mattered not. Before Christ Jesus, it was all less than zero. They, in fact, are negative balances on the scale of righteousness or goodness or whatever you might want to call it. There is nothing that we can do that is worthy of God forgiving us of our sins. And there is no way we could ever do enough. All that we do for ourselves in order to save ourselves from our own sin should be seen as detrimental to our case before God the Father. Paul continues in verse 8, and he writes, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. He repeats again so that we can see clearly. He considers all of it a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. There is nothing greater in this world than to truly know Jesus and who he is and what he has done for each and every one of us. Because of the greatness of knowing Jesus and the costly nature of Paul's previous life, he writes, 
I have lost all things. He considers them rubbish so that he might gain Christ. This is perhaps one of the most difficult things that believers need to come to terms with. The problem that the Judaizers faced was that is was what theologians call syncretism. That is the intermingling of different religious practices. Paul cut himself completely off from his Jewish practices in order to become a Christian. Paul is saying you are either all in or you are not in at all. If you were Jewish or Hindu or Islamic or Taoist or whatever religion prior to belief in Jesus, all of these must be cut off. There can be no intermingling of the religions at all to do so. To do this is to corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the only way that one, Paul says, might truly gain Christ. He continues this idea in verse 9, and he writes, that he might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. When we count everything in our pre-Christian lives as rubbish and cast all of that away, then we can truly gain Christ Jesus. And when we do so, we will found to be in him. And when we are found within him, we will be found to have a righteousness not of our own making, but from our own works or from our own works of some law, but a righteousness that finds its source in the faith of Jesus Christ. Okay, I know some of you just went, hold on just a second. That's not exactly what that says. And you're correct. The NIV and most translations translate this as faith in Christ Jesus, which would imply that we must place our faith in Jesus. I will argue that grammatically in the Greek, that actually makes no sense and is not what is being said. In the Greek, this structure is what is called a genitive. Doesn't mean a whole lot to you. This would typically then be translated as faith of Christ. That's a little different. And I would argue that it is a very specific type of genitive that Greek scholars would call a genitive of source, meaning that the source of the faith is Jesus. If you listen to any of my other messages, this is not something that is new to you. However, this passage is amazing at showing what I believe is an error in most every translation. And that is because the very next phrase, which is translated, the righteousness that comes from God, is written in the identical manner as the previous phrase. Why do they then translate both of these phrases so differently? Well, the truth is, is just like the Judaizers, we want desperately to bring something to the table. We want somehow to be a part of the equation that brings salvation. But that's not what this passage says. We know Christ because of the faith that comes from Christ, Jesus, and the righteousness that comes from God. And it is by faith. But not our faith. It is the faith of Christ Jesus that fills and removes the scales from our eyes that we might see clearly our sin and our great need for his sacrifice so that we might then be saved. Paul continues in verses 10 and 11, and he writes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow 
to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So after everything up to this point that Paul has written, I hope that we can see that there is nothing greater in this world than knowing Christ Jesus. We should see everything else as rubbish and meaningless when compared to knowing Jesus. So if there is anything in this world that comes between you and Jesus, it must be cut off from your life. It must be seen as a loss to your life and therefore must be left behind so that you might walk forward into a life filled with Jesus. Because when we know Christ, then we will know the power of his resurrection. The power of Jesus' resurrection came through the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The power of Jesus' resurrection is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now fills you and seals your life as a guarantee that you will one day reach your destination and stand before Jesus Christ. We now have gained a figurative fellowship in, of, in our sharing in Jesus' sufferings. Hopefully, none of us will be crucified and caused to suffer as Christ suffered. But even if we are crucified, God the Father will not be pouring out all of his wrath against sin upon us which is exactly what he did when Jesus chose to take the way of the cross. We suffered and died. He suffered and died, and then three days later arose from the dead that we might live. And now, through the waters of baptism, we're immersed into, this, into his death, burial, and then brought up from those waters into the newness of life in Christ Jesus. And all those who believe on Jesus, that he is who he says he is, and believe that in his works, we receive his faith, that we might receive that Father's righteousness, and the Holy Spirit will then deliver us to our eternal glory with Jesus. So what? First, and of greatest importance right now, do you believe in Jesus? But what do I mean by that? Because John says that even the demons believe, but yet are not saved. So what must one believe? Do you believe in one God who is our Father and has made all things both visible and invisible? Do you believe in one Lord Jesus the Christ, who is the Son of God? He is of the essence of the Father, therefore he is light of light, very God of very God. He was begotten, not made as other men, of the same substance or essence with the Father. Do you believe? that by Jesus all things were made both in heaven and on earth. Do you believe that Jesus, for us men and women, and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and of the Virgin Mary, and was made man? Do you believe that Jesus was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered, and was buried, and on the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and now sits at the right hand of God the Father. Do you believe that one day from heaven Jesus will come again with glory to the both to both <clears throat> the living and the dead? Do you believe that Jesus' kingdom has no end? 
do you believe in one in one holy and apostolic universal church and acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins and look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come? For centuries, these have been the foundational beliefs of the Christian church. Do you believe all of the statements that are made above? Well, then you are most likely a Christian. I say most likely because the Judaizers would have agreed with every single one of the statements that I just made, and yet were still heretics. Not because they didn't believe the foundations of the faith, but because they tried to build a new foundation with additional beliefs and rules and regulations. Centuries later, these problems still persisted and led Martin Luther to write and post his list of grievances against the Catholic Church. This would lead Luther to declare that we are saved by faith and faith alone. And there is only one faith, and that is the faith that is found in Christ Jesus. And apart from that, there is no faith that might lead one to saving grace. The church today must stand its ground in this matter just as Paul did. Today we, just as the early church, have become quite synchronistic. We have accepted and brought in much of today's secular philosophy and thought and allowed that more than the scriptures to shape our sermons and our churches. As a result, many in the church in America aren't truly Christians because they have never truly heard the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a shame because just as Paul found today, we too should find that the greatest means by which we can find peace and rest in the great truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we daily preach to ourselves and remind ourselves of these truths, we will find the anxiety of this world that so desperately wants to cling to us and drag us down into the pits of morass are chased away. And in the midst of the darkness and the morning of this life, joy comes forth, joy overflowing, joy that destroys anxiety, that joy can and is found only by the grace of God through the faith of Jesus, by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus into this world to live a perfect, sinless life as both 100% man and 100% God. Jesus, we thank you that you chose the way of the cross that you chose to give your life as a sacrifice and that you would take upon yourself the sins of the world and allow God the Father to pour out all of his wrath and anger towards that sin on yourself that we might know peace. Holy Spirit, we are so grateful that you have now come to fill us and seal us, to empower us, that we might now live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus. God, help us more than ever that we might see clearly the power of the gospel in our lives and that there is nothing that might come against us that can stand against that power. Amen.